This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, should we be concerned with our own security here in Canada? RCMP's national uh, national security team and Toronto police are investigating after a woman was arrested and now charged with threatening people with a knife. It has been reported that the woman was wearing a bandana uh, adorned with the symbol of ISIS. Uh, we're hearing more about a woman charged with assault than we are hearing anything in relation to terror. Is... Is that the case? Is that the truth? Are they trying to keep a lid on this uh, in order not to stem panic of any sort? But it doesn't seem to me that we've heard a lot about this uh, over the last uh, few days. Simply, it happened on Saturday. To talk more about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, and RossMcLeanSecurity.com. To find out more, his Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics, he's with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? Doing great. Doing great, Scott. What can you tell us about this scenario, this case? Uh, as you started off, we've we've got a lot of questions about uh, what's gone on here. Uh, I mean, let's be, let's be clear. What happened was, of course, we had the London Bridge attack take place, and on the same day, on the Saturday, we had this attack take place in Scarborough. Now, we didn't hear about it for a couple of days, Scott. Why did that happen? I mean, I'm in the media. Normally, my ears perk up at stuff like this. Why was the, if this happened the same day as the London attacks? Did we not hear about it? Well, that's a question I don't think we've had answered. Uh, as soon as the police decide that they're laying charges against somebody and they charge them and the charges are laid, they can release the name and the photograph if it's applicable. But I don't believe that that's what happened here. So we're, we're trying to keep it quiet due to the politics of this. I certainly think that that's, uh, that's a reasonable question to ask. Is that a smart thing to do, considering it happened on the same day of other major attacks? Like, wouldn't wouldn't all all police services in all parts of the world be on special alert because of that? Well, you know, that's a great point. One of the things I note, uh, you know, one of the Twitter accounts that I follow online is the NYPD's counterterrorism unit. Uh, and they're quite active. As soon as a, a, a terror act happens anywhere in the world... They're tweeting about it. They say, we're monitoring about it, we're looking at it, and they'll also go so far as to say if they're deploying other resources in the meantime to deal with it, and they're pretty straightforward about, you're going to be protected. And they put out tweets about that to to reassure the public. However, in our case, we just get the sounds of silence with no information about it. And as you know, every time I talk to you about any crime, Scott, any crime, doesn't matter what we're talking about, I always go to motivation as being a key to how you either solve the crime or protect yourself from it. For instance, if somebody is going out and all they're doing is stealing gold necklaces off people, off women when they're standing at bus stops, you want people to know that so they can defend themselves against it. If if a, a 19 uh, or a 2007 Toyota Camrys are being stolen a dozen at a time in a certain city, you want to know that so that Camry owners can be aware of it and protect themselves against it. You know, in this case, we have what appears to be an ISIS-related uh, attack that happened right in one of our stores in the middle of the day. And we're, we're told that we're, we're not told anything about it, and then we're told not to worry about it in any way, shape, or form by the chief of police, which is, I just think that that's not being straightforward. Uh, when, where, where, when does it seem to appear the information stopped? Is it, the, uh, the, is the gap between the media and the police? Where, where did the, where did the roadblock go up? Uh, I'm not sure, but I mean, certainly there isn't any, uh, news agency these days. I wouldn't know that as soon as they heard about an attack like this, wouldn't be on it and reporting it right away. Uh, certainly for doing, but we didn't hear about it for a couple of days. So I'm going to assume at this point that the police did not put out a release on it or put any information out. Well, most media outlets covered the story yesterday, late yesterday, but again, it, it seems to have gotten lost in the sauce for some reason. Well, yeah, we don't have it being covered very well. Uh, I mean, this is the issue. And, and one of the shocking things to me is uh, not only am I hearing the fact that supposedly there was ISIS uh, claims made in the store when this person was waving the knife, there's, I think there's six charges against her now uh, for doing this. But apparently in court, she all but pledged her allegiance to ISIS when her name was called in the box. Mm-hmm. Which, look, the guy who was just uh, shot dead over in France, uh, it turns out that the police have gone through his home and found a videotape or a video of him pledging his allegiance to ISIS when he launched that attack. So I think that these are pretty important things that the public needs to be educated about, not uh, scared about or 
are overreacting about, but educated about, so they know what to do. I mean, this is a pretty serious thing at a store, someone waving knives at people. Uh, well, it, it begs the question, do we have to wait before somebody is harmed before we go, oh, gee whiz, they were on the radar, uh, they attacked somebody in a mall, they did this, they did that. I mean, it, it, where do you draw the line here? Well, right, and we're looking at apparently two Canadian entire employees, and you know, a lot of the times they're just young kids doing part-time jobs or doing something. Yeah. I don't know who they – there hasn't been an interview that I've seen yet of the employees who did this who apparently tackled her in, and, it, according to one report, pried the knife out of her hand. Yeah. And it was apparently a rather large knife. Uh, you know, so the issue there is, of course, Scott, even if you're good at doing, an, uh, you know, knife defenses and things like that, all it takes is one slash to one vein. Yeah. You know, and you can be dead. So there's certainly a concern there, I think. I mean, what what are retail stores supposed to do now? This is, you know, the other part about this, Scott. Well, again, that's all the whole soft target thing. They just, you know, I mean, it could happen anywhere. Well, is this soft target or... Or is this just someone who hasn't adapted yet? We're seeing reports, not confirmed, that this person and her family just arrived from Syria. Well, what's their status? Are they immigrants? Are they refugees? Are, are they citizens? What's, what's their status here? So there's the politics of that there as well. So there's, there's lots of questions, I think, Scott. Uh, let me give, uh, play devil's advocate here and give the, the officials the benefit of the doubt at this point. For security reasons, would they be trying to keep this under wraps so they can continue investigations, so they can, you know, stop people from fleeing, this sort of thing? There's, there's always that possibility. Uh, but one of the things you'd like to see with that, like I've noticed over in uh, the U.K., for instance, if they're keeping it quiet because they're making rapid progress and making all kinds of arrests and doing more things and you find that out later, okay, that's good. But if you find out that there's really no more progress, there's not much being done on it, they're just plain keeping it quiet, I mean, that's a bit of an issue. Surprised that, you know, uh, this happened on Saturday and here it is Tuesday, Wednesday, we're talking about it? Yeah, well, once again, this is going to raise lots of issues. I mean, if I run a retail store somewhere... Apparently, the issue is here, and there should be lots of good CCTV coverage on this that will come out eventually, but the, the facts as we know them now is apparently the woman came in in a full kneecap, all in black, with an ISIS-looking type headband on her head, and she was shoplifting, uh, confronted when shoplifting, and then she got into the fight and pulled out the knife. So, you know, and apparently she was wearing the kneecap when she was arraigned in court. Her face was completely covered. I could see that in, in the drawings that were put out by right. some of the court reporters yeah. for covering it. So you can't see the face of the person. So if you run a retail store, how are you supposed to deal with an issue like this if you don't understand the motivation or, or how this occurred to protect yourself? I think that's what people need to know the most about. Was she shoplifting? That's the, that's the allegation. That's the allegations we're seeing, that she apparently was shoplifting. She was confronted by someone in the store. You know, typically stores like that, they'll have their store detectives as opposed to the retail people doing it. But, right. but, who, but who knows in this case as to what it was. Uh, we don't really know because we're not getting the info. Uh, could somehow this be construed to be self-defense? <laughs> she thought, well, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, no, I mean, you have to play it well. I was going to make a joke about the devil's advocate if this is an ISIS-related yeah. uh, issue for dealing with it, because it truly is a bit of an evil thing here. But, uh, you, know, the, you know, the big problem that I find in a lot of this, Scott, is whenever it comes to war, national defense, immigration, all these, there's political will that's needed, where the people either have to back or put pressure on the government to do things. Otherwise, you can't continue doing certain things, or you'll be forced to do certain things. And I just can't help but feel that there's a little bit of that going on with how we're dealing with this here in Canada. It's not the first time where there's been sort of a cover-up uh, of, of these sort of issues. So what does it say when the RCMP is confirming their Greater Toronto Area Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, INSED, is involved in this? Well, what that tells you is the Toronto Police certainly had the belief uh, that there is enough of, a, of a evidence here to involve them on, on a basis for looking at it uh, for terrorism. I mean, that's one of the things that they'll be looking at. I mean, certainly, as I said, they'll want to find out. When you when you have someone involved in terrorism these days, you want to look at their network, who they came with, where the family is. That's typically what you see now is the first place that's raided, Scott, after a terrorist incident or a terrorist is shot, is their home. And they go and they look at the family, and the family is arrested, maybe released later, and find out if, in fact, there's any furtherance 
of uh, support of a terrorist organization within that group. So, I mean, those are going to be the questions. Uh, is this is this generating a lot of chatter within the service? All I can tell you is that, you know, for the most part, police, I'm just going to generalize here. I haven't talked to anybody recently about this, but generally speaking, police want to keep people safe. That's what they do. That's what they join the job for. They don't like when politics gets in the way of them doing their job or they get told to be quiet about something or some such other thing. Generally speaking, they don't like that. And so whenever you get politics uh, involved in policing, it it's demoralizing to the to the officers for the most part. So it'd be interesting to find out just a little bit more about what's going on here. When will we know more? From an investigation standpoint, where does this go from here? I don't know. A lot of the times what we've seen happen, Scott, is you'll get publication bans put on these on these cases. You know, like we saw, you remember where the uh, where that man, the Montrealer, went in and shot a bunch of people in a mosque in Montreal, mm-hmm. right? That uh, was put on a publication ban. So we're not hearing the information out of that. And also of interest at that point, remember, there was a point where the police who were investigating that put out the names of two different suspects, you know, one of which was a Muslim name. That was reported because that's what the police had put out they were looking for. And then the prime minister's office got involved with contacting news agencies that covered the, those tweets and reported the information and asked them to remove it. So, you know, these are the questions you have to ask yourself when you're looking at these issues. And I think that Canadians are smart enough. I think that we care enough that we're not going to overreact. We're going to be able to handle this information in a correct way. But you need to have the information if you're going to look after yourself. Uh, Are you worried? Do you think more of this goes on than we know? I mean, because, again, Canada's painted a picture, you know, is painted as, you know, the utopian picture here. Everything, everybody gets along, everything's great. Yeah, there's a certain point where it becomes a problem. You know, my analysis looking at what's going on over in the U.K., in London right now, is that the police are totally overwhelmed. Because they've got, there's there's 30-odd thousand police that are there looking after some 23,000 people that are on their terror watch list. Hmm. And you just can't do that, Scott. You can't manage that. You know, the information has come out that one of the persons who's on the top, the top 500 people who they're looking after uh, as being a terrorist uh, person they're worried about, Scott, he's got a job driving a London bus. Hmm. You know, so I, I think that what we want to be careful of here in Canada is we don't get the police to a position of overwhelm where they can't deal with the threats and monitor the threats. I mean, you know, we had that bomb went off down in, uh, what was it, Strathroy, Ontario. Well, that was the police trying to monitor someone there who was not supposed to be on the internet, who, who we were worried about, and right. they just got there in a nick of time, really, you know, for dealing with it. So, police overwhelm is what I worry about. Uh, do you think this is an isolated anomaly? Do you think this is one of those things, uh, you know, mental illness, all that sort of thing? It'll be anything but what we're assuming it is. Well, we don't know. We we, we won't know until and, unless somebody comes forward and puts all the information together and tells us what exactly is going on. And are we going to define radical Islam as being a mental illness? I don't think we're going to do that, but is that what we're going to do or how are we going to cover this? I just think at this day and age, we've got to be very, very straightforward about what the threat is and what the threat may be. You know, we just saw a terrorist attack go on in uh, Iran this morning, and Iran has fired back saying they're going to, they're blaming the U.S. and Saudi Arabia for it, and they said there'll be payback for it. So th- this sort of thing starts to get out of hand. Will we hear more about this case? It's been remanded. I don't know there will be a publication ban. I don't know that uh, we'll see the pursuit of it. I would like to see more information on the case. Certainly about, I'd like to know about the status of the person that came here. You know, we had great conversations before, you know, about talking to people, asking them the questions about their values. And, you know, that was a silly thing, apparently, because they'll just lie to you. Well, in this case, this woman... The way it appears, she pled her allegiance to ISIS in the middle of the courthouse mm. without even anybody even asking. Well, her, so. you know, look at the situation in London where one of the attackers is in a documentary on, on the whole issue. So it's, you know, it's not like it's, it's any secret here. Not to them, anyway. Well, but like I said, that's where the police are overwhelmed. You know, and I want to make sure that the police here don't end up in a state of overwhelm. I think the RCMP have done a great job of staying ahead of this for the most part for us. I think they've done a really good job, but I think we need to manage this. And if there's politics that are getting in the way 
of doing the policing and protecting us. I think we need to know about that as well. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. You can check out the Facebook page, Crime Power, uh, Crime Power and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. That's great. Everybody stay safe. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know if you watched this yesterday and if it was only poly, uh, political pundits and poli size that were interested in this sort of thing, but uh, I started watching and I couldn't stop. And I know, you know, our guest Michael Tobe right now is going, oh, Scott, come on, please. Stop wailing on this guy the way you are. Um, again, politics aside, uh, and I, I certainly don't agree with everything President, uh, former President Barack Obama did, uh, but his speech yesterday, as I wrote in my commentary today, was a breath of fresh air. Because instead of confusion and, and feel, feeling ill at ease, uh, there was actually a feeling of hope. Now, whether he's just blowing smoke and air up our rear end, who knows? But, you know, it, it's, it was interesting listening to somebody who an hour later didn't contradict what they said, you know, on the Twittersphere. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and, of course, political pundit. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You know, I'm trying real hard not to just bubble over Barack Obama here, but you, I don't know if you saw the speech at all, but it looked pretty good. Yeah, I wouldn't bubble over it. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, he, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. Montreal is not that hard, Scott. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. The left has have purchase power, too. They can afford tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, you're, and you're absolutely correct. But yeah. what did you think of his speech? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll put on my nonpartisan hat. I don't know where it is in my closet. Oh, here it is. Okay, and I'll go from Is there. that the flat hat? <laughs> yeah, how'd you know? You're right, it is a flat hat. But seriously, um, if we look at the speech just as, say, a contrast to what we usually hear from the current U.S. President, Donald Trump, it's like night and day, and we know that. Obviously, President Bar- uh, former President Barack Obama is displeased with what he sees coming out of the White House in Washington, which is no shock. He's not happy with the message that's coming out from D- President Donald Trump, and not just on Twitter, but in general. He's not pleased that many of the policies that he supported and promoted, including the Paris Accord, are being thrown into the trash bin, So, or at least in terms of what the United States chooses to do with it. So he's frustrated with that. So his speaking tour, which includes Montreal, will obviously touch upon many of these issues. And he obviously talked about, as you say, sort of issues of hope with more of a positive message and more of a spin on it. You know, you look at some of the the lines he has, and I don't have the actual transcripts in front of me, but I have found clips here and there. You know, one of his big lines was, and this is Mr. Obama, I'm convinced the future does not belong to strongmen, which got a rousing applause from the very left-leaning audience who's not happy, clearly, with the strongman who's in power right now in the White House. But again, these are the sorts of things one would expect from Mr. Obama, who is a great orator. I'm not going to ever take that away from him, mm-hmm. and I've said that to you and others in the past. He is one of the finest orators probably who has ever been a world leader, I would say certainly in the last 50 to 100 years. Bill Clinton certainly was in that regime, too. He was an excellent orator, even yeah. if you disagree with his policies, as I did. And I disagree with virtually all of Barack Obama's policies, but he portrays them in a very positive, upbeat tone. And that's what the audience in Montreal wanted to hear, Scott. They want to hear positive messages, not negative messages, which is what you often get from Donald Trump. The difference is here is that the reason that Donald Trump is negative is part A, because that's just part of his character, but part B, because he sees a world in many ways that is, quite frankly, going to pot. We've seen it based on terror attacks in Paris, Manchester, London, Berlin, etc. And you just see a world that's just very, very difficult. A world that was difficult when Mr. Obama was president, but it is becoming even more difficult with Mr. Trump as president. And it has nothing specifically to do with his presidency. It has to do with the world around us. So, yeah, for a little while, people got a very positive, upbeat, uplifting message from a former president, Barack Obama, But Mr. Obama's words and phrases and ideas don't mean anything any longer, not because he is unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but because he's no longer in power. So whatever he says or doesn't say, 
doesn't really make a difference one way or the other. And that's absolutely correct. This is entertainment more than it is anything. He's getting right. paid a large sum of money in order to do all of this. Which is fine. Yeah, uh, but to me, this is less about content, less about politics, less about, of course, the warm and fuzzy things that he always says. Of course. But it's a reminder, I think, to me, of just how unqualified the current president is. Uh, again, whether you agree with or, or disagree with the politics of either one of these uh, men, uh, it, it just it, it's just another another great big red arrow pointing to Trump saying, look, like, how can you compare these two? This guy, this guy is 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 uh, is bridging gaps. The mm-hmm. other guy is creating them, whether it's looking at the glass being half full or half empty, whether it's the different attitudes of each beyond all of that, just the professionalism of it. I mean, that's what struck me. Sure. Although, in fairness, I don't know how much the junior senator from Illinois was wildly qualified to be in the White House either. <laughs> Many of us, including myself, said he was a greenhorn at the time. Now, obviously, Trump. Yes, but at least he was wasn't. And again, here I am. Level. Here I am sticking up for Barack Obama with you. I can't believe I'm doing that. But at the end of the day, tape, the, <laughs> exactly. Thank you for reminding me of that, You're Michael. Welcome. I better be careful of what I say. Yes. But yeah, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day. Uh, most of what Donald says creates his own problems. Sure. You know, again, that, that, that's the angle I'm coming from. It's just yeah. that he, he just, Barack seems much more in control than what Barack Obama, or sorry, uh, Barack Obama seems much more in control than, than what Trump does. Yeah, and I'm just teasing you, Scott. Of course, no, naturally, I, I agree. But again, it's more of the presentation value than anything else. It's the way you basically elicit words, the way you create phrases that either inspires or just frustrates people nonstop. Donald Trump is just not really an inspirational speaker. That's not his speaking style. It never will be his speaking style unless something huge happens in the United States and he is forced upon himself to basically either change his tone, change the direction, etc., much the same way that George W. Bush had to do after 9-11. Bush was, you know, a decent speaker throughout most of his career, but he changed as a speaker when 9-11 occurred and became an important figure in terms of someone that they looked at for calming, for healing. And actually, Bush took those characteristics and, or that speaking style and kind of drilled it into himself and ran with it throughout his presidency and has even done it since that time passed it. And that's really to his credit. He actually improved his speaking style. I think Trump will continue to get better as time goes along. Practice makes perfect, after all. But you're right. He is very, very different than Barack Obama in terms of the way he portrays the message. Not ideologically. We know the two men are very different. It's just the way that he presents his information. And sure, Trump can be upbeat and uplifting, much the same way Obama is, but Obama does that with such precision, and it's really a skill. You know, there are many great orators, and lots of people speak well. The question is, how long can you captivate an audience, and what can you do to sort of inspire them with words, phrases, ideas, concepts, and that's what Barack Obama is able to do. He did it as president. He did it before he was president. He will do it long after his presidency is a distant memory for many people. Right now, obviously, Obama's presidency is very fresh in their minds. And there are a lot of people, mostly on the left, but a lot of people who want to see that sort of inspiring, upbeat message again. And they like the fact that they can listen to Obama, feel good coming out of an audience after I guess about an hour to an hour and a half of just listening to him or further, and they can actually then go back to their own world and sort of think that, yeah, you know what, Trump's in the right House now, it's only going to be four years, the future looks better. But again, as I said before, while Obama certainly presents himself as a very different type of president and a very different type of politician than Donald Trump is or will ever be, The fact still remains that Trump is in the White House. Mr. Obama's not. And from presentation value, entertainment, as you said, yeah, it's lots of fun to listen to someone like an Obama or a Clinton talk, but it's more important and more pressing, even if you dislike him, to hear what Donald Trump is going to say, because that's going to affect world world affairs. Do you think uh, Donald Trump instills confidence when he speaks? Because to, to me, it seems that his plan of attack is always confusion, keeping you yep. off balance. And I'm not sure if that works when it comes to leading a group of people. 
Yeah, and the reason I pause is because I would say his true believers would say so. I think they are inspired by the fact that there is a president in the White House who's not politically correct, who has no filter, who will say whatever is on his mind. And I think they like that sort of uh, type of president, someone who will blast away at the media, blast away at elites in Washington, and just bomb, bomb, bomb. And there is actually an audience, whether Canadians like it or not, whether your listeners like it or not, there is a real audience for this stuff, and it's not just in the United States. It's everywhere, including this country. Mm. So I get that part of it. Um, but is he an inspiring character, a president in general? No, and I don't think he actually creates an enormous amount of confidence when he speaks, but partially that's because of everything he does during the time he is speaking or in lieu of him speaking. So in other words, Twitter just brings down everyone's positivity about Donald Trump. Mm. He could do something great one day, throw out a whole bunch of tweets like he did against Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, and that's the end of it right there. People are going, oh, God, it's Trump again. So no, he doesn't really inspire a lot of people or inspire a lot of confidence. But if you believe that Donald Trump is the best thing since sliced bread that's ever happened in U.S. politics, then yeah, you are going to be inspired because he's, been, he's so different than any of the previous presidents before him. Uh, do you think Trump saw this? I'm sorry? Do you think Trump saw Obama's speech? I don't know if he necessarily saw it. I'm sure he probably got a transcript of it. I got one. If I got one, he certainly could get one. So I think he probably read it. Uh, Donald Trump, if there's one thing about him, he will remain very attuned to what's going on in the media, not even if it just necessarily affects him. If he thinks it's going to affect him, he's going to pay attention to it. And look, that's actually a skill set. That is one of the reasons why this man is in the White House right now, Mm. is because he knew how to work with and work against the media in many different ways. Those two things sort of going at the same time really benefited him. So, yeah, I think he probably had his radar slightly affixed to it. I'm sure he did get a transcript, and if he saw anything, he may have seen some available news clips. Like, for example, he or his staff could just go onto YouTube and see little clips of the speech. They were yeah. already out there. And the speech itself, and I haven't looked, it may even be on YouTube by now as well. So there's certainly a lot of ways for him to look at it. And even though he doesn't obviously like Obama, even though the, the seething hatred the two men had probably has slowed down to some degree. They still don't like each other, but I don't think it's as intense as it was years ago during the whole birther argument. Um, I think still that he realizes that Barack Obama is around. Barack Obama won't be running as president again, but he can obviously cause problems for him around the edges. And for that reason, yeah, he has to pay attention to what Obama says, not because it's necessarily important or going to change how the U.S. works on international relations or even just domestic relations, but because it matters to the U.S. political process. And more importantly, a lot of U.S. Democrats will watch this, see what the reaction is like, even if it is in Canada, and then try to incorporate some of these ideas and policies into their own messaging. So, yeah, he would pay attention. Do you think this is playing at all in the U.S., or does anybody care about it? And I'm surprised if he did see it, he didn't tweet about it. Um, I don't necessarily think it's playing in the U.S. because, again, a lot of Americans would be aware of the fact that Mr. Obama is going to go out and speak, and he's going to speak at a lot of different engagements. I think what they would notice is something really profound had been said at Montreal, which I would argue nothing really was. You know, the language was obviously against Trump without mentioning him, against the White House that's currently in power without directly pointing fingers at them. Talking about an America that he built rather than the America that is being built by another person. I get all of that. Um, But are they necessarily paying attention? I don't think the American public is probably aware of it. I know for a fact, just on a private nature, and I don't mind admitting it publicly, that the U.S. media was not really very aware of what was going on. They knew Obama was coming to Montreal, but I don't think they really had their eyes and ears focused on it. Um, But certainly, no matter what a U.S. president says, even when, for example, if we go back a little bit in history, when Ronald Reagan did his famous five speeches in Japan where he was paid a million a pop for it. Think about that. A million dollars in the 80s or something like that. 
and to give the same sort of speech, and I like Reagan a lot, and I still do to this day, the same sort of speech you would expect a Ronald Reagan to make. A couple of them are on YouTube. If you're bored, you can always go take a look. Um, They were good speeches, but they were given by a man who's obviously his health was starting to decline, and he didn't have the, the strength of voice as he did, say, in the 1960s when he was the governor of California, or even the early days of his presidency. Even so, people still paid attention to it, and the U.S. media focused on what Reagan said in Japan simply because if something interesting popped up, well, then they would report it. In the end, nothing much was, so they didn't say much of anything. The same goes for here. They're probably aware of it, as I've said. They're not really paying close attention to it, but if something big had been said, then yeah, they would have reported it. As it stands, no, I doubt much will ever be said of it. Uh, would Donald Trump learn anything from this? Would he, or would he just, ah, that's him, I'm my own man, I, I'm, you know, I'm not taking any pointers, any tips from that? Well, if he was watching it, or if he read the transcript, I would strongly doubt that Donald Trump is going to be moved one way or the other by what Barack Obama said. As you pointed out, and you're quite correct, he is his own man. You know, he is the president. He's in charge. He believes he's the most powerful figure in the world. Ergo, when he walks, everyone's going to watch me. Who cares what Barack Obama says? At the same time, as I said before, he still will be at least somewhat focused, or his radar will be focused a little bit on it, because he wants to ensure that he's aware of where Obama is going with his messaging, and he probably wants to see if the Democrats start using little bits and pieces of it as time goes along. They may choose not to. I have no idea what they plan to do. You know, generally speaking, most Democrats still look favorably upon Barack Obama. There's some who don't care for him, but most of them are fairly upbeat. So I think from that standpoint you're going to see that some people will pay attention to the message, but will it really matter to Donald Trump one way or the other? No. Much the same way I don't think he really necessarily cares if any former president speaks out. Yeah, he'll, be, you know, he'll actually ask someone for a transcript. He may take a quick look at it, but he's not going to really care one way or the other. Like, for example... Maybe he'll just want bullet points. Well, he might want bullet points. That's his life. You're right. I mean, that's what we've learned from his meetings. He prefers bullet points because, God forbid, we should actually read the papers that are put in front of us. And that really, you know, that's another, that's an issue for another day. But that's a real huge problem with Donald Trump, even though I now sort of understand that he's at least paying a little bit more attention and he's actually reading more things that are presented to him. He's not a big reader. He never has been. This is not a man with an enormous amount of knowledge in politics, history, economics, uh, foreign policy, world relations, other countries in general. (laughs) It's not that he's dumb. No one is saying that he's dumb. He's, He's bright in his own respect. He's just not a very learned individual. Some politicians want to be learned or they want to increase their knowledge. I mean, heck, as much as people criticize George W. Bush, for example, he actually read a lot of books when he was in the United States because he wanted to learn. He was interested in learning, much the same way Reagan did, Clinton did, Bush Sr. did. Mm-hmm. Um, even Carter and Ford actually did to some degree. And again, those two were not the greatest presidents the U.S. has ever had. I don't know if Trump necessarily fits in that sort of category. He always wants to sort of think on these little, as you say, bullet points, little tiny speaking notes, summarize this whole issue for me, or summarize this book for me, or paper for me. And that can work to some degree if you have bright people around you in your cabinet and advising you. But it's not clever to do, because if you are the leader of the free world, you should be aware of almost anything at any point in time which means read your bloody notes. Uh, just got about a minute left here. I can't let you go. Uh, tomorrow, Comey on the stand uh, yep. in regard to the whole investigation and, and Russian interference and such. Uh, are we looking for too much tomorrow? Will life? Will the planet still be spinning? Will the sun come up? What will change after tomorrow? I certainly hope so. We're not going to speak again. Um, <laughs> but yes, I think everything will Do you think be this okay. is more to do about nothing? Do you, think we'll, do you think we'll have lots tomorrow? It'll just be uh, more of the same. Oh, I think there'll be a lot tomorrow, no matter, even if Comey doesn't say all that much, Scott, the fact that he's taking the stand is going to be huge. Every camera is going to be focused on him. Every news organization, pundit, political commentator, uh, columnist, reporter, everybody is going to be curious to see what he says. I don't know if there are going to be massive revelations. 
He will probably bring a transcript with him. Will he bring tapes with him? I don't know. Is he going to bring a legal team with him? The, the word on the street is no right now, but he could surprise people. He is a lawyer, so certainly he could represent himself. Um, I don't know what we're going to actually see. I think we may see some contradictions between the way Donald Trump perceived the meetings and the way James Comey perceived the meetings. But the real key is very quickly... If James Comey says that at different points in time, he felt that President Trump was overstepping his political boundaries in terms of what he was asking him to do about Russia and various other matters, or just basically asking, am I part of the investigation too? If he confirms a lot of that, it's not going to lead to impeachment or anything like that, but it's going to make people really wonder about how far Donald Trump thinks he can go as president and what he really understands in terms of where his wall or his barrier is, because that in itself is a major issue that we basically will have to discuss more often for the next few weeks, months, and years than anything else. Michael Tobe has been with us, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, political commentator. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter uh, about, uh, of course, the legalization of marijuana in this country, which is happening next year. The federal government says that the roadside testing devices that were part of a pilot project are being used successfully to detect whether a person has been driving under the influence of drugs. To talk more about all of this, Klaus Wagner is with us, Constable Traffic, uh, traffic Specialist with the Hamilton Police Service, and with us now. Hello, Klaus. How are you today? Great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Where are we at with this project now? Can you update us at all? Yeah, so um, Toronto and the OPP were the ones doing the t- pilot project, and now they're just putting all the data together to put you know, uh, proper paper forward then that will go to the government and to um, the uh, people that that we use for the criminal code to say that instruments are approved to be used on our streets here in Canada. And once all that's done, from what I'm hearing, probably maybe next year we're going to start to see these out on on the street for officers. And what you talked about Toronto and OPP being involved in this pilot project. Was Were there any of the other police services involved in this in any way? Um, it might have been York, too. I'm not sure. I know there was only a few. And then RCMP out, out right. in some other, out some other provinces were, were using them, too. Uh, but not, as far as being outside the pilot project, there, there wasn't any consultation or going back and forth at this point? Uh, with like with our service, yes, no, because we already use the um, the drug recognition program here in Hamilton. Well, you, why don't you talk about that, Klaus? Well, how does it work now? Okay, so um, uh, we've had it here in Canada for since uh, 2007, and in 2010, I took the course here uh, up in Ottawa. So that's when we started using it here in Hamilton. So it's a 12-step program, and this is the actual test that even once we have these instruments, that you will eventually have to do. So it's like. So the instruments are just like the roadside devices we use for alcohol. So they will just test for the presence of um, a drug a drug in someone's system, and then the officer um, will use that to place you under arrest for your for being uh, impaired by the drug. And then you will come in and do this drug recognition evaluation, which is, like I said, 12, 12 things that we're looking. We're going to be doing some physical signs, uh, walk the line, uh, touch your nose, Romberg, balance test and one-legged stand, and then we're also going to be checking your vital signs, your your blood pressure, your pulse, your your temperature. Uh, then we're going to be checking your eyes, and then your and then we're going to be doing a darkroom test where we check for your pupil size, because as we know, some drugs, you know, dilate the pupils and some drugs uh, constrict the pupils, so we're going to be looking for all that. And then the totality of all that, um, along with what the officer saw on the road, your driving ability, uh, we'll, we will come up with a drug category. And there's seven drug categories. So we're not actually saying you had cocaine in your system. Cocaine is in a category, uh, central nervous system stimulant. So that's what we say you were on that. We take Right now we take a urine sample here, but we could also take a blood sample. We, are trying to, we might be working with the hospitals to take a blood sample. That will get sent to the Center of Forensic Sciences. They will do a test. They will be looking for a wide range of drugs. Uh, the toxicology will come back and it will confirm. And right now uh, here in Ontario, it's over 98% confirmed that whatever the officer called for the drug category that's in there. And then uh, if the person 
you know, goes to trial, uh, we're very successful so far. So in the end, a blood test is taken even with both of these tests, whether it's the new one or this or exactly. the one you're using. The first one is just a saliva test. Right. So they have the two. They have a drug swipe from, um, from a company out of Germany. So it just takes a swipe, and then the, the, the little film will come back that there is a drug presence of the category. Like right. I think there's 70 or 80 that one of the companies uses, and then the other one is the same type, but it's an electronic one that comes back with, yes, there's a drug presence in there. Um, it doesn't say what what level. It just says enough. And then with the officer saying, well, also with what I see, you know, you're unsteady or the way you were driving or whatever places you under arrest now, just like we would with the roadside. So the saliva test is is something for the officer to use at the roadside, and then that determines either a positive or negative. And then from there, you go on and and go through one of these other uh, exams as you're speaking of, which would include a blood test. Ex- right, blood or urine. Right now, we're taking urine in Hamilton. Right. Just to keep, and it's, and it's more for time frame because to take blood, we would have to transfer somebody to the hospital, and, right. and and again, it's an inconvenience for the one under arrest and for for everyone else. So right now, we're taking urine, which is which is shows us um, drugs in your system too. Uh, so this is a separate unit. Any idea what the cost of these units are at this point, Klaus? Um, from the, what I've been. Pricing out so far, again, I mean, maybe once the whole country goes to it, but right now the, the one, the electronic one, is about $4,500 a unit, and the drug swipes, because they're just one little package, they're um, around $40, uh per swipe, or if you buy so many, you get them at a discounted price. Right. Uh, are you confident that uh, once we all get to where we need to be by next year, that everything will be in place so you so you people can do your jobs? That's what that's what we're hoping. Like I said, from what um, from the meetings I've gone to, the, the results were very positive. Um, they were trying they were trying them on a lot of people where um, they were using you know even just some passengers in the car you know with the, with the uh, I think where charges weren't going to be laid for anything. They just wanted to test it. I know they've been doing things like that out in Vancouver for a long time, you know, just trying to, you know, get these things so we know that they're accurate, just like the drug recognition program itself has been was started in the States in the late 70s. Like, it's been around a long time, and it's always being tweaked because of all the new synthetic drugs that are being that are being developed by, by mm. people. And, mm. you know, we're seeing coming across the border, and, you know, they're talking sometimes 20 to 30 different synthetic drugs yearly that the Canada Customs is seeing that, you know, that we have nothing on. Wow. Is there one system that seems to be standard around the world? Is there one system that's coming forward? Will it be a universal thing like that? Um, I know that uh, Australia and some and some European uh, countries are already using the d- drug swipes, and it's again, it comes back very positive. But the DRE program is worldwide. We uh, it's used right across the world. Um, that for that. When do you expect to hear more on this? Um, we're, well, I mean, we're getting ready for the summer, for Parliament to go out for the summer, you know, right. uh, so probably in the fall. Okay. Klaus Wagner has been with us, Constable Klaus Wagner, traffic specialist with the Hamilton Police Service, talking about uh, being able to detect the influence of drugs on drivers. Uh, Klaus, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Like always. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Klaus. All right, let's move on to Lorraine Summerfeld. Uh, she, of course, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the Hamilton Spect and hoax of the Lemonade Car Show on Rogers TV. She is with us now. Hello, Lorraine. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, are you confident that by the time we get to this next year that the police will have the tools that they need in order to keep the roads safe? They'll have tools, but I don't know how good those tools are. <laughs> hmm. um, there's too many false positives right now, and as usual, it's Canada's weather that's doing it. Um, Why does the weather? I was noticing in this in this piece they were talking about they were being tested in all different temperatures mm-hmm. and sunny conditions, rainy, snowy. How, why is weather such a factor in this? Um, it's the same as with all the safety systems in the cars and everything else. Canada is a, we're considered an extreme climate if you read your owner's manual for oil changes and stuff. Hmm. And our our climate really does swing. It's bipolar. It goes from one to the other. Yeah. And anything that is high tech or you know really picky is going to be impacted by that and that's this test apparently the tech is fairly new they've been using them in a lot of parts of Europe for several years now but not 20 years is not bulletproof and my worry is that yes we need to have something we can hang a charge on the same way we do with a breathalyzer except this is just going to have lawyers having heydays because there's such a outside of the margin range. And so there's going to be lineups 
these charges going to court. Uh, my guess is that for the first year, you're going to see a few of them tossed out till they figure they get all the the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Here, do you think? Uh-huh. Do, you, do you see that coming? Yeah, and I think what people also have to remember, though, is that for years now, um, every police force in every territory and province um, has drug recognition officers. And these guys are trained, and women are trained, to look for signs of drug impairment. And the Supreme Court of Canada recognizes them as experts. So if a cop has been called to the scene and he's a he or she is a drug recognition expert, and they decide you're impaired and they haul you in for a blood test, um, they're considered experts in the eyes of the court. Well, so, you know, you bring up a valid point. I mean, just because this is becoming legalized in Canada now doesn't mean that there already are not, you know, systems in place to detect you if you are impaired. Coke is the number one problem that they're facing, not pot. Really? Yes. That's out of um, the GTA especially, but Coke is the biggest problem they're having out here in Toronto. It's not pot, because you figure pot, most people just kind of get tired and stay home, right? Yeah. It's not a lot of them driving around. Hmm. But, and pharmaceutical drugs, like prescription stuff that is, um, people will tend to either take a prescription that was not intended for them, or you've got people who take two or three different things not understanding the interactions can cause drowsiness or impairment. So cops are trained to look for all kinds of impairment. And it, they're already doing that. They've been yeah. doing it for years. And if they take a blood test, that's going to be the definitive thing, not blown into any little strip of paper. And, and, and I think that's what people are forgetting in all of this, is at the end of the day, it's something to be used at the roadside that eventually gets you to that blood test, which <laughs> is already there now anyway. Yeah, and that's how the cops are seeing it. Because I've said, are you guys all excited that you're going to have like a number, like .05, that they can you know start laying charges for alcohol? And he, go, and he just shrugged, and he goes, we're already... You know, we've been dealing with this for years. Yeah. And how do they detect how long it's been since you've used it? I guess it would be the same as alcohol. Would it just not diminish in the system? I mean, well, or actually, does it hang longer? That's the problem they're having in Oregon, because if you've got someone who's been smoking pot for years and years and years, the impact on them is far different yeah. than someone who's never smoked before, and then they smoke it. Yeah. And so in some people, it stays in their system longer. It depends on if you eat it and if, or if you smoke it. So with the legalization of pot, it's really hard to know what might impair somebody, you know, won't impair somebody else. And it's really wildly different than it is with alcohol. Mm. So it's going to be, Oregon's having, their, their charges are up 50% in the pot stuff since they went legal. But I don't know if that's because they're looking for it or measuring for it. I'm, you know, I mean, who knows? It's hard to prove. Interesting to know. It'd be interesting to know the conviction rate as well. Yeah. Um, what are the? Where's the auto auto industry on this? Are is this something that they actively uh, uh, pursue? Is this something actively that they're trying to uh, get ahead of, or do they care either way? Um, it's a that's a behavioral thing. So I don't know that it's you know, lots of journalists and lots of. People have suggested that auto people could, or manufacturers could put in something where you couldn't start the car if you've been drinking, yeah. you know, like suggesting all this stuff. Manufacturers are not going to go that route because people that spend fifty or $60,000 on a car don't want to be spanked by it every time they get into it. So uh, I, I don't see them trying to, um, I think they're creating enough diversions with all the infotainment garbage they're putting into cars. So I mm-hmm. figure they're, they're doing their part for the distraction, right? Uh, that's it. That's my point. They are spending so much on uh, IT within cars. Are, is yeah. this something that stands up, or is this, again, just something that turns off the consumer? Um, I, I really think it would be a turnoff, personally. Um, and I think, I don't think I, they're not going to go chasing down this, because they're going to say it's not their problem. But that's not something they're concerned with. They want to make a car that protects you in the event of a collision. They're not trying to prove how that collision happened, as long as it wasn't uh, technical error on the on the side of the car. That's what they're concerned with: is that the cars are as safe as they can be, and that the cars don't cause problems and have breakdowns. I, Not whether you know the idiot behind the wheel. Got I guess first. I guess their answer to that would be: well, that's why we're coming up with self-driving cars. Well. I, again, this this is not happening tomorrow, and lots of the features... The How about by the end of the week, Lorraine? Because I'd yeah, really maybe, like maybe to someone else to, to drive me around. <laughs> well, that's called a chauffeur or a boss. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps a son or a daughter. Although I understand once they get their wheels, they don't want to drive you around anymore. 
Well, they're awesome. The first time your kid can go to the store and get you wine, that's great. <laughs> and, get you, use, and get you wine. Of I all things, for my it, children when they turn 17. Yeah. It, 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 couldn't be, it couldn't be milk or bread or whatever. It's, it's going for wine at Lorraine's house. Who are you house. talking to, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, where do you think we'll be one year from now on this? Um, same place, only more, more stuff clogging up the courts from... Um, people contesting the results of the test. Not a lot of stuff. It's it's like the uh, oh the fifty over you know careless driving thing when they yank your car by the side of the road. Yeah. Every single one of those goes to court. Every single one goes to court, and usually gets reduced to forty nine over. Let me ask 50. you. Let me ask you this. Um, so a lot of this was to get it out of the hands of criminals, keep it out of the hands of kids. Uh, keep it out of the court system. Uh, what we take out of the court system from a criminal aspect, are we going to end up filling the courts with a driving aspect? Well, no more than um, the alcohol is done. I think it's just going to be another layer of impairment that we're going to have to find out. Ultimately, it's got to become the same way. You get in the car and do up your seatbelt, and you know that's the right thing to do. That took generations. Yeah. Um, alcohol, most of us know our kids are better than we were. And yeah. not you know getting behind the wheel, but we still got a hard, hard baseline of people who will not will not stop drinking and driving, and they know it. The cops know it, and all the institutions know it that do surveys about it. There is a hard line that we'll never get below when it comes to people who are determined or just decide that is the way they live their life. And we're going to see the same thing with drugs. And as Constable Klaus Wagner was saying, and you were mentioning earlier, with synthetic drugs on the rise, they have to keep torquing these things to identify all these different drugs. And then, you know, we're going to go back to actual human beings detecting impairment so we can cluster around technology all we want, but ultimately we still need humans um, to know what they're seeing, or to have that gut feeling that something's not right in here. And we still need that. As much as we want a number, like something that yeah. we can black and white, we still need all the grays in between. Are we trying to mimic uh, dr- uh, alcohol testing with this? Is that the problem? Oh, They're two totally different things. We're trying to use an alcohol system to do to base drugs on? I, I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. And what's interesting is you go, okay, how much pot are you allowed to have in your system? So now jurisdictions are trying to come up with, if it's legal, can we go with, they measure it differently than they do alcohol. But at what point do you say you're allowed to have a little bit of Coke in you? <laughs> you know, I mean, wow. so in Europe right now, yeah. they're going at zero. They identify the top eight uh, prescription drugs and the top eight street drugs. And you can have prescription-level prescription and zero on the street drugs. But if pot becomes legal, okay, does that change it? I don't know. Yeah. Pot's a prescription. What's your prescription for pot? Yeah, there's going to be a lot more questions than answers, it certainly seems, at the early part of this. All right, can't let you go without asking what you're driving. Um, Oh, I just picked up a Rogue, actually, but I had a new Mini uh, Cooper 7 last week. I want one. What Cooper 7? What is that? It's... It's seat um, seven. It's, it's the seven edition. No, it was an automatic. But this car <laughs> sounds like something door. out of a circus. No, I want. When have I ever told you I want what I'm driving? I want this car. It is so much fun. BMW got it right with this one. It's spectacular. The handling, oh, so much fun. So and, go buy a coupe and, and it's this one. So it's a mini, right? It's a mini, and instead of the big Countryman Maxis, which I really had no time for, I don't like those big, you know, yeah. silly looking minis. It's a mini. It's. Um, Got the useless back seat. It's perfect. It, it handles, and it's just glorious. It's like driving a go-kart. It is. Yeah, a very fabulous cool. fabulous German go-kart. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Lorraine Summerfeld has been with us, auto writer, post-media, motherload column in the spec, and the host of the Lemonade Car Show on Rogers TV. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.